I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. Hello, Miss Advocate. Welcome to our summer series. Here we are. So pushback talks. Sunny days. Sunny days for listening on the beach or by the river. <laughs> by the river. Are you still stuck in Canada, is it? Pretty much. Yes, we're stuck in Canada. Well, now, mm. now my family is entirely vaccinated, so we can... Uh travel without quarantine to many places but whether we will is another question okay our summer series we're trying to as we are hopefully not working you will listen to some of the best of uh, we did uh, in pushback talks and we really wanted to listen to the amazing american journalist sarah chase who her last book was called or latest book it was called on corruption in America but she's also been uh, a journalist based in in Afghanistan in Nigeria and other countries where she has encountered uh, corruption on a very close level and she has very interesting interesting thoughts about how corruption is created and and the effects of it but what was interesting for us Leilani remember she talked about the kleptocratic networks yeah, I found it actually startling and maybe a little overwhelming, which is why I'm really happy we're bringing it back for the summer series, because uh, it deserves a deep thought. The idea that there are these networks that don't, that aren't based on individuals, but they're based on um, sort of over time and across countries and favors owed from one generation to the next, exposing how difficult it is to address corruption when it's done through all this intergenerational cross-border um, networking. Uh, mm. I found it startling. And um, I mean, she. I think at one point she said that really there will be no change if we don't grapple with and address corruption. And I think that's, I mean, you should remember that Sarah Chase was uh, advisor to the Joint Chief of Staff during Obama, so meaning Obama's military advisor. So it's, she was high up and, she, and her program was anti-corruption. She meant that if we fight corruption, we can also fight terrorism, like the Taliban, like Boko Haram and so on, because they, in corrupt, societies these movements actually can easier easier get support because people see no other ways so listen to sarah and listen to when she talked about the midas myth she talks about chopping up the head of the hydra and she also talks about someone we talked a lot about blackstone as a very clear part of the kleptocratic network people companies powers that destroy value in order to create zeros. Listen to Sarah Chase. I had no intention of thinking or working on corruption. Instead, it was the Afghans who came to me desperate, saying, how do you expect us to stand up against the Taliban when our own government is treating us as 
badly. I mean, they would say the Taliban strike us on this cheek and the government strikes us on that one. You know, I would have elders hitting themselves in the face to tell me this. And what they perceived was that it must be that the United States and frankly Canada and the rest of the international interveners, you know, must be in favor of this corruption because everything they were doing was enabling and reinforcing it. And I came to understand that people were being driven into the arms of the Taliban, not out of some ideological um, disgust at Western culture or, you know, promiscuity or this or that, but rather at corruption. I mean, the Taliban were able to brand themselves as more up upstanding and having more integrity than the Western-backed government. Now, that very word corruption is as ambiguous in Pashto, which was is the language of southern Afghanistan where I was, corruption is as ambiguous in Pashto as it is in English or in French or in just about any other language I've ever, you know, asked for it to be defined in. That is to say, it spans this very material, you know, public integrity, meaning all the way across to a kind of moral depravity. Um, And that is where some of the puritanical morality of a group like the Taliban, or indeed the early Protestants, who also arose in a violent extremist insurgency against corruption. Uh, That's how those things tend to merge. Then you bring it like one step further, because you obviously you learned something in in Afghanistan and also in Nigeria, where you could see that that corruption was like pushing people in the wrong direction. The first thing I learned, as you suggest, in Afghanistan was that the extremist movement that the international community and and most Afghans were battling, the Taliban, um, was actually flourishing due to the corruption of the Afghan government, as I just suggested. Then I discovered that this was not just an Afghan anomaly. I mean, I had had my head in the Afghan situation, very granular, very local for, you know, eight years. And I gave a talk uh, in Germany to a group of mostly law enforcement, but also military officers from, I don't know, 40 different countries. And I, it was actually about narcotics. (laughs) And I just couldn't resist saying that, well, actually, narcotics is just a piece of this story. Narcotics is just a revenue stream captured by the, the corrupt network in Afghanistan. Here's the whole story. And what I explained is that corruption is not a, a one-off scandal perpetrated by one venal individual and his or her cronies or one company, you know, who has captured one or two political officials. Rather, in a country like Afghanistan, certainly in Afghanistan, it was the operating system of a network that was remarkably sophisticated. That is to say, you can look at a country and say, wow, that's a failing or a fragile state or it's a, an incapable government. But if you scratch the surface, what you discover is that it may be incapable at governing, but that is not its intention. This network is incredibly sophisticated and incredibly successful 
at achieving its objective, which is maximizing wealth for its members. And that faced with that kind of a network and no means of civic recourse, people will turn will go to extremes. And in Afghanistan, the extreme was religious extremism, which is deceptive, right? Because it 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 it's not explicitly stating corruption or at least corruption as we understand it, as it's as it's uh, as what it's challenging. So I, I I just depicted that network idea and that a police officer who shakes you down for some paltry amount of money on the road, it, it, it's not just a police officer and he's not just putting that money in his pocket. He's actually paying part of that money up the line all the way up to, you know, the interior minister. And so I had a slide depicting that and a dozen people came up to me at the end of the talk and said, you just described my country. And I was like, whoa. And they were all of these developing countries, and most of them had an extremist religious insurgency. I'm interested to know um, a little bit more about your definition, just to get back to basics, so that people can understand that the way I think you described it, it's like in the fabric of society kind of thing. And I, I think it will be helpful for our listeners to hear just a little bit more about how, not just what it is, but also then, of course, how it works. Often, corruption comes to light in the form of a specific scandal that involves you know, a specific and rather small number of venal individuals. That's largely an artifact of the type of proof that's required in order for people like Frederick to actually report on it. You know, you have to get enough detailed substantiation, so you really have to focus on a single case. That's a little bit deceptive, though, because it implies that this is the work of isolated individuals. What I'm getting at is that corruption in a great number of countries around the world, and I would include the United States, consists of the operating system of sophisticated networks that link together people from very different sectors of society, which we usually understand as being separate. The power of these networks is they span business and government. And they, in fact, span the out-and-out criminal sector as well. That gives them an enormous panoply of capabilities that they can bring to bear and also an enormous flexibility. Networks, remember, are not hierarchical structures that are rigid. They are very flexible and they're able to adapt to changing situations. They're able to adapt to challenges. and they, including the loss of their leading members. So I've sometimes used the Greek myth of the Hydra uh, as a metaphor for understanding these networks because you chop a head off and two more will grow. Also partly what I really love with your work is that your focus is not on these individual juicy stories. And all the corrupt businessmen and we're interested in, in patterns, you know, in to, to understand what are we up against. The hydra-headedness is a pattern. And you see it in countries around the world where there have been uprisings against corruption. What you quickly discover is that often the network is happy to sacrifice one or two of its heads and new ones grow back quite 
quickly. So the case of Guatemala is one example where there were massive anti-corruption protests led to amazing prosecutions and convictions. It overturned the government. And now you have a government basically run by the same network. Egypt being another perfect example of the 2011 Arab Spring Revolution toppling the Mubarak government. And now you have um, basically all it did was destroy the one corrupt challenger to the military corrupt system that existed. Now the military corrupt system is is back in power. So that's one pattern. Another pattern is um, the role of network members who hold public office. The problem, Frederick, with the the sort of individual scandal model for understanding this that you described is that the act for which we blame the corrupt public official is basically stealing cookies from the cookie jar. And that's a problem. That is an important role that network members who hold public office play, diverting and aiming streams of public monies, procurement in particular, government contracts, and that kind of, of public monies toward network members. That's a really important role they play. But maybe even a more important role they play is to bend and repurpose the institutions and agencies of government to make them serve the objectives of the network rather than the public interest, right? And those instruments or agencies that they can't weaponize in that way, they disable, they, you know, hollow out, they leave empty of of personnel, they underpay the staff, they reduce the the jurisdiction, this kind of thing. And and that is the critical role they play. Another feature of all of these networks that I have looked at, a pattern that I've seen every in every country that I've examined, you know, there are different revenue streams that are captured by these networks in different countries, depending on what is lucrative, right? But there are three that show up absolutely everywhere, and they are finance, energy, and high-end real estate. And of course, your work has shown that it's not just high-end real estate, it's also you know, low-income real estate, which is even more, if if possible, even more diabolical. So that's the first point. The second point is that another absolutely universal feature of these networks is that they rely intensively on, I want to say, concentric circles of facilitators and enablers. And without those, they cannot function. And so the inner circle is what I would call facilitators, meaning skilled professionals who sell their services for money to anyone who can pay for them. And they include registered agents, which create the offshore shell companies um, and serve as the post office boxes and the legal representatives whose names are signed on all of the papers, all of the purchase papers, you get to a blank wall. The lawyers, who do the legal work and who also do a lot of the advocacy lobbying for the changes in legislation that these private sector members of the network are looking for and also advocate for uh, both for the image of these uh, corrupt 
entities and people and for the changes in the rules that they want. Um, and then also real estate agents, you know? And I would put Blackstone, I would think of Blackstone as a member of the network. Blackstone is not a facilitator. It is a full-fledged member of the corrupt network. And the third point that I would like to dwell on a little bit is money. It's been a problematic thing since it was invented about in approximately 600 BC. But there are periods of history when money comes to play a very particular role and a very dangerous role, and we're in one of those periods. And that role is it's no longer a means of exchange. Money has become the sole measuring stick to mark our social standing. Money is what we compete over. We compete over zeros in bank accounts. And that's a race with no finish line. We are living on a finite planet. There are ineffable, irreplaceable values that, you know, there are both tangible values like our forests and our waters, what's, you know, the land, what's on the land, what's under the land, and land being particularly important in the real estate context is being converted into zeros converted into zeros in bank accounts. And that is what corruption is feeding on, that obsession to turn everything of ineffable, irreplaceable value into electronic signals is the compulsion that corruption is feeding upon. I would like to hear from you, like, why is corruption bad? And, and why should we? What's the, what's the imperative to stop it? Well, I mean, the answer is it's the arrogation of everything of value to a tight-knit network of cronies. So if we are concerned with the well-being of the greatest number of human beings within the framework of a healthy planet that we're living on, corruption is going to destroy that, right? Because corruption is about feeding a bottomless compulsion to transmute all of that. Human beings, their creativity, their labor, their relationships, the land, what's on the land, what's under the land, into zeros, as I said, into electronic signals. So that's the kind of philosophical imperative. Democracy does not exist where systemic corruption exists. The masquerade of democracy exists. But actual democracy does not exist. Both Leilani and me, the film, and your work, you talk about community, the value of community, the values of community. And in your book, you talk about 180,000 years of community building what we are, humankind. Kind of, and you've seen that then in the villages of Nigeria and Afghanistan, the solidarity within the communities. But, you, but we can also see that these forces, the corrupt networks, are also destroying communities. So that's another common feature of these networks is that they don't take challenge lying down and they deploy a lot of very powerful tactics and counter moves when they come under threat. And one of the most powerful is to divide up their challengers, particularly along identity divides. 
And that is what has me perhaps the most concerned at the moment is the identity issues are mobilizing us um, around the world more effectively than this collective fight against corruption that pe- that is striking people from all different communities. And in your work, what you point out is how the use of of housing as an extractive resource is decimating communities and causing groups of people who who were living in a in a great deal of solidarity even if often in poverty but their poverty was often i want to say um I don't want to say mitigated, but softened in some way by the tissue of human relationships that existed in those communities. And that tissue of relationships also made it possible for them to join forces across the identity divides to try to stand up to some of the corrupt power brokers who were coming after them. Now, these power brokers are so unbelievably powerful that even this kind of micro community level coming together was insufficient. But without those kernels of local communities, there's no standing up to this. And so in a strange way, the purchase of land and buildings in the types of places that push brings us into serves two purposes for kleptocratic networks. It both helps them amass wealth which is their end objective, but it also decimates the opposition. If they even create wealth, they mainly also destroy wealth. You know, they they destroy the wealth we have as a community. They destroy value. That's right. They destroy value in order order to create zeros. Let's put it that way. Because they always sell themselves as wealth creators, but they actually, and that's what Saskia Sassen also tells us, that they are just taking wealth and they're, they're, they don't really give a shit what happens with the rest of us and the rest of the society. No, no, they're extracting wealth on behalf of their network members. I mean, and, and it's, it is a very dark subject, obviously, corruption, but, but the hope lies in understanding it and seeing the pattern. And you do that really well to help us to understand it, Sarah. And I, and I to be optimistic, I can see that more and more people around the world. I mean, governments are also not trying to fix tax loopholes. They're, they're like they're going a little bit more after the, the tax evaders. They're trying to, to lock some doors, at least some doors for the, for the corrupt. Uh, there's a lot more to do, but, but only seeing your book out there and your work and, and the interest for your work tells also a story that there is a, enough of us pissed off with this behavior and it's time to to so let's we have to bring more people into this circle and and to see what's going down and the finance industry is then filled up with corrupt money because we I mean, so it's and i and i think that's that's so important to understand that when money is laundered it is just money we pay taxes we work hard but we compete with money that is like stolen and tax evasive 
and 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 that money is not only the the cocaine smugglers it's also the big corporations who refuse to pay taxes and who violate environmental and labor laws and who underpay pay their workers and who do just all kinds of things and i want to just point out specifically within the finance industry right now it is private equity which is also fantastically underregulated and the perfect vehicle for money laundering at the moment um, because none of the investments need to be disclosed um, and no due diligence requirements exist on private equity companies. But to your point on it's just money, Frederick, you reminded me of a comment made by, you know, some lady in a tiny poor town on the banks of the Ohio River here in West Virginia. Um, when I asked about corruption, what does it mean to you? And she answered, money washes hands. And I found those to be three incredibly profound words, right? What it means is exactly what you just said, Frederick. Not only does the money, once it's washed, become just money, but again, because money is a mark of social standing, if you have a lot of it, all of a sudden your hands are presumed to be clean, when in fact what your work has revealed is that having a great deal of money is usually a, a very clear indicator of dirty hands, not clean ones. Sarah Chase, she's a she's a cool cookie, isn't she's she? She's incredible. Yeah, a cool cookie. Yeah. Well, hmm, yeah. <laughs> not sure about that, but uh... hey, come on, I'm Swedish, you know. <laughs> we we in Sweden, we can we can talk very strange. You're, you're, you're okay. serious about your cookies in Sweden? <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, no, Sarah yeah. Chase's work is amazing. And the way she thinks about these things is, is amazing. And, and, you know, pretty profound to, th she, I mean, she says, basically, that, you know, our entire democracies are threatened by corruption, that that's that 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 this is all about the erosion of democracy. Um, so that's, that's profound. So look out for her books. Uh, Sarah Shays, and, and you can read more here in, in the blurbs of this podcast. Leilani, pushback talks. We're, we, we're still going, even if we're in the middle of the summer. So, how do we fund it? Yes, we fund it through Patreon. You go to patreon.com, you lock your credit card, you support pushback talks, and what will we do with all this money that will float in? <laughs> Produce more pushback talks. Okay, yeah, okay. But you could also see it as you buy a summer drink to Leilani. I mean, I would like mm. to see you with an umbrella drink. So we could say the next person who is becoming a member of uh, our Patreon group will get the image of Leilani with an umbrella drink. Absolutely. That we can promise to our listeners. An umbrella drinking uh, Leilani picture privately to you. So, I mean, if there are more coming in, there will be maybe with different dresses or, you know, isn't that okay? <laughs> yeah, I like it. It sort of brings me back to the roots of my first name, which is, of course, Hawaiian, although I'm not Hawaiian, but my name is Hawaiian. So doesn't it suit me to, to have some floral necklace and a drink with an umbrella, pina colada or something? Yeah. So... Support uh, Pushback Talks on Patreon and then ask for a Leilani 
umbrella drink picture. <laughs> I, I really want people to. We can actually publish it later on. I mean, so everybody can. I mean, we could actually let other patrons see them too. Sure. <laughs> okay, my dear. Um, have a nice summer day, and that goes for all of you out there. Happy summer. See you soon. Happy summer. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushtofilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>